Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. I want to share with you a quotation from Origen who says, We dare to say that the Gospels are the flower of the Scriptures. And the flower of the Gospels is that of St. John. Our program tonight is, as you know, a three-part series. We have an opportunity over the next three weeks to learn from the Master who learned from the Master, who leaned upon the breast of our Lord, who was called out by our Lord as the Son of the Virgin Mary, as another Christ. We have a great gift. And I encourage you over the next three weeks, begin reading the gospel. Read it a couple of times. Set aside the television, the newspapers. They'll all be the same news when you come back to it, so don't worry. Set those things aside and spend some evenings studying. The gospel of John is something that is near and dear to my heart. I have an opportunity to teach it to the missionaries of charity in D.C. Uh, once a year. So when I gave this topic over to Dr. O'Donnell, or when he told me that he wanted this topic and I needed to step out of the way, I was very much disappointed. But there are few people that I would rather turn this mic over to than a great historian and a great biblical scholar. Our speaker tonight received the 1995 Cardinal Newman Society Award for Excellence in Catholic Higher Education. He is the author of Heart of the Redeemer and Swords Around the Cross, a frequent lecturer for EWTN. Dr. O'Donnell and his wife have nine children and six grandchildren. He's the president of Christendom College and resides in Stephen City, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you, Deacon Sabatino, for your introduction. It is always a joy to be here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, I just want to commend Deacon Sabatino for the great work that he's doing here uh, to be part of the new evangelization. I did not know I was taking your place, so I feel very, I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> but anyway, we had a, an invocation uh, asking the Father to bless our gathering, but I think also every time we look at Scripture, it's always good to ask the Holy Spirit to come in too. So if that's not offensive to anyone, we'll do a brief prayer to the Holy Spirit. You can remain sitting. Prayer is good wherever it is offered. All right, even sitting is fine. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of thy faithful, by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, your little packet, I'm not going to spend time on it. You can look right there, and you can see the rationale of what our objective is, what we're going to be trying to do. Now, it's true, there's no way in three lectures that we can do all of the Gospel of John. It is simply too rich. We'll go as far as we can. We'll try to select certain passages and highlight those. And if there's something that doesn't come up during the course of the evening, you can always raise a question. All right, does that sound fair to everybody? But we'll do the best job we can with the time that is given to us. Also in the packet, there's some key terms, concepts you will notice that are found uh, in John's Gospel. And always, we don't read this isolated from the church. We always want to think with the church. So I've given you a couple of commentaries taken from the fathers, from Athanasius and others, their reflections on the opening of John's Gospel. Hopefully it'll give you a sense of what it means to sort of read with and to think with the church. Now, of course, how many of you, everybody has a favorite Gospel? How many like John the best? 
Now all the melancholics are putting up their hands. All right, how many like Matthew the best? Yeah. Anybody for Mark? A few. All right, Luke? Ah, yeah, the gospel of mercy. All right. Well, John's gospel is certainly one of the most beautiful, and it's very clear when you start reading this that this gospel is very different from the synoptics. John, in his presentation of material, presupposes that those who are reading his gospel are already familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He presupposes that. And uh, what he does in his gospel is he focuses attention in a special way, not so much on the teaching of Jesus as on the person of Jesus, who he is. The synoptic gospels focus on the kingdom. John focuses on the king, the person of Jesus. And, of course, tradition is unanimous that the author of this gospel is none other than John himself. And there are many things internally in the gospel that point to John as being the author, uh, in addition to historical testimonies from many of the early fathers of the church that spoke about this authorship. We do know quite a bit about him, not only from the gospel. His father was Zebedee, he was a very prosperous fisherman, very well-to-do. He was of an enthusiastic disposition, one of the great consolations. I'm a horrible nickname giver. My father was. Every one of my kids, I remember went water skiing up in Maine one time and we're out in the boat with four of the kids, and I kept calling this one child by four different names in the course of the thing, and the driver's trying to say, who is this, you know? But Jesus gave nicknames, and when he encountered John and his brother James called him, remember? Sons of thunder, sons of thunder. So he was of an enthusiastic disposition. But he was especially intimate. Throughout this gospel, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there can be no doubt that there was a special relationship. One of the titles that the Middle Ages gave to St. John was Evangelist of the Heart of Christ. And that's very beautiful. And there have been countless mystics who in experiencing Christ and his love and receiving revelations of the Sacred Heart have had those revelations occur on or near the feast day of St. John. There has always been a mystical link between the two. John was there for everything, the raising of the daughter of Jairus. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. At the Last Supper, he is the one who was sitting right next to Jesus in what St. Augustine says was a great mystical moment, reclined his head on the bosom of our Lord and received great graces from that experience that inspired his gospel. So much so that at the end of his gospel, when he wants to identify himself, he says, the one who leaned on the bosom of the Lord. That's how he described himself. And then, of course, he was the only one of the twelve that did not abandon our Lord during his passion. He was there at the foot of the cross. And of all the ones on the planet, he is the one who received Blessed Mother. I mean, talk about an intimate relationship. And it's interesting to sort of reflect upon, in a certain sense, how sad it must have been for Mary, right? She has Jesus. Jesus is dying, and Jesus is the Son of God, and she loses Jesus in death, and she gets John, all right? Which is, you know, John probably felt very unworthy, but just imagine briefly for a moment what it must have been like when John, after the resurrection, said his first Mass for Mary, and then raised the consecrated bread and said, the body of Christ and then John, through his priesthood, was able to give Jesus back to Mary. That's a weird thing to be Catholic. <laughs> it makes great sense to you start thinking about it. It just gets stranger and stranger and more beautiful, truly more beautiful. Now, this scripture, this gospel of St. John, is normally divided into four basic parts, and we do want to talk a little bit about that just to give you an overview. One of the most important parts we're going to start with tonight is the prologue. The prologue in the old, or what's now called the extraordinary rite, 
the old mass, it always used to end with the priest going over to the left side of the altar and he would read the prologue. Why did he do that? That prologue is a summary of the entire gospel. It's the summary of the whole mystery of our faith. And that's why it's so important we should spend some time on it. So the prologue is the first part. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 18 in John's gospel, that's the prologue. The second part is what's called the book of signs. The great miracles, the great signs of who Jesus is, which are performed. And that part goes from chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 12, verse 50. That's the book of signs. Then if we can make it that far, there is the book of glory. The book of glory starts in chapter 13, verse 1, and goes all the way to chapter 20, verse 31. Then after that, you have an epilogue. That's the fourth part which is basically chapter 21. Those are the four parts in which you can divide this gospel. Now, why don't we do something that Julie Andrews would approve of? What's he talking about? Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> A very good place to start, all right? When you read, you begin with? When you do the Gospel of John, you begin with, in the beginning was the word. All right. Nothing in here is... A I know, that's really bad. Anyway, it's, are we really taping this? All right. Sabatino, they'll be calling you back real quick. Now, let's take a look at this. In the beginning was the word. Start with the very start. In the beginning. Nothing that is in there is by accident. Now, he starts with that word, in the beginning. Sound familiar? You ever heard it before? If you're a Jewish Christian, you're reading that, what do you immediately think of? Genesis. And that's exactly what he wants you to think of. Especially in this first chapter, he is writing with what we call a Genesis motif. There's all sorts of things he wants you to be connected with. He wants you to be thinking about. Now notice, in the beginning was the word. It's all very easy to start asking questions. The beginning of what? When he says the beginning, what do you think he's talking about? Beginning of what? Creation, beginning of time, the very beginning. When you had that first beginning, the word already was. So right at the beginning, trumpet blast, the word, the logos, wisdom, all right, already existed. And in case anyone's missing the point... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, important preposition, with God, and the Word was God. All right? Clear affirmation of the divinity, but also an affirmation of what other great mystery? The Trinity, right? Because the Word's with God. So there are persons within the deity, and yet there's a unity of nature. The Word was God. So right there you get this manifestation of the Trinity. Now he goes on to give you additional details. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was made nothing that has been made. So everything exists, comes into existence how? Through him. Now remember Genesis. When God creates, how does he create in Genesis? He speaks, let there be, and so it was. So God creates through what? His word. He speaks through his word. Everything that exists comes into existence through his word. Right? All things were made through him. And without him was made nothing that has been made. So everything in the created order, everything in the universe, comes through him. But of course, remember what we know especially about him, because we still know our creed, right? He was begotten, not made. And that's the thing he's trying to hit on here very clearly. The divinity. John is really big on the divinity of our Lord and the real humanity of our Lord. A very balanced Christology. So all things were made through him, and without him was made nothing that has been made. In him was life. What's the greatest of gifts? Life. There's nothing. 
He has the fullness of supernatural life. Why? Because everything is made through him. He's filled with life, supernatural life, divine life. Goodness is diffusive. Life is diffusive. All right? And so everything that is contained within, in him was life. And the life, life was the light of men. The light of men. Think of Genesis. First day of creation. What's the first thing created? Light. Right? So life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness grasped it not. Some translations say did not overcome it. There was an opposition. But nothing could withstand the power and the beauty of that light. Now that gives us the very start of the beginning. Sort of a Genesis motif. Now we get this whole sort of summary of the gospel. There was a man, one sent from God, whose name was John. Which John is he talking about? The Baptist. Very good. All right, so he's talking about John the Baptist, a man sent from God. That's what the prophets are. There's someone sent from God. This man came as a witness to bear witness concerning the light that all might believe through him. So there we get a beautiful summary of the mission and the purpose of the Baptist. He's sent from God. His name's John. He comes as a witness. And the Greek word for witness, of course, is martyr. All right? So he's going to witness. He's going to witness with his life. So he comes to bear witness concerning the light. The light is what? The light's the word. All right? So his whole purpose is to come to bear witness concerning the light that all might believe through him. And we're going to see this later, right? He must increase, I must decrease, all right? His purpose is to get people to see the light and to believe in the light. So we go on there. He was not himself the light, but was to bear witness to the light. It was the true light that enlightens every man who comes into the world. Why does he enlighten every man who comes into the world? Because truth is given to us. Because the world back at this time was struggling, as it is now with all sorts of horrible things, horrible doubts. The Greeks didn't think you could really know God. Even their greatest thinkers like Aristotle and Plato felt there could never be a relationship between man and God. Because in order to have friendship, to have a relationship, there has to be a basic equality, but there could be no equality, right? At least in that sense. So they had doubt even about God. All right? Then they had all sorts of other problems. How do I live? I can't live the way I want. Seneca said, men hate their sins, but can't do anything to give them up. So you have doubt and you have that despair. And then you have the darker reality of death. Everything comes to an end. People die. All right? But here comes the true light that's going to enlighten every man about what is our real relationship with God. How can we live a good life? All right? And then what happens to us when we die? There is a light shining, and when the light shines, what can we do? We can see. We can see. Light gives illumination. And so that's what he's talking about here. Now, there's a problem in the gospel. And this is the problem he's going to focus on now. He was in the world. Who's the he? It's the word, right? He was in the world. Now, you would think, of course, if the creator came into his creation, everybody would know it, right? But that's not what happened. And anyone who's read the synoptics knows that's the case. As a matter of fact, we just celebrated Christmas. Who knew? A few shepherds who were outcasts, a few wise men. Jerusalem gets upset. Herod didn't even know. And then Jerusalem gets all upset, but does anyone in Jerusalem go look for the child? No, they don't. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. The worldly wise, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all right? Oh, I'm getting political. Okay, I'll try to behave. All right. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, you know, <laughs> the Donegal Gazette. All right, does that feel better? <laughs> all right. He came to the world, the world's made through him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Who are his own? Some people, his Jewish people that he loved. Salvation's from the Jews. He comes into the world, the world doesn't recognize him. 
A baby? Nazareth? All right. He comes unto his own, his own receive him not. Prophet from Galilee? Son of a carpenter? Come on. All right. But, very important, said in the Vohe, all right. But to as many as received him, he gave the power. We got to think about this. He gave the power of becoming sons of God. Did you ever read Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia? Are you a daughter of Eve? I mean, there's something special about us. Something special. Anyone who received, there's a power that we have been given, that we take for granted. And we need to be reminded of it. It's the power of becoming sons of God. That everyone in this room who is baptized is a son or daughter of God. Which means you have a dignity. And you have a right of inheritance. There's a power that comes with that. There's a principle operating inside of you, if you're open to it, and you realize it, that you can actualize, that can change your life dramatically. Probably has already, in most instances. But can continue to change your life dramatically. Why? You're a son and daughter of God. You have a power that's been given to you. Because why? To those who believe in his name. Now, all we know is the word, but what's his name? Jesus, which means Savior. And if you believe he is your Savior, see, Jesus has become irrelevant because people think they don't sin anymore. You know, if you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. But the pagans didn't have that problem. They knew they were sinners. And so when someone came and talked about salvation and being saved, they understood that. And we've got to get back to that and recognize that. So by believing in his name, who he is, Jesus, Savior. And who are those people? He now identifies them. They were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, how are we born of God? What do we call it? Baptism. And your baptism, why? Because what do you have? Faith. You believe in the name, you seek baptism, and then you are born of God. Just as in the genealogy, it said Adam was of God. All right? So we tour of God because we have a special birth that makes us son of God through baptism. All right? So he goes on. And the word that he's been talking about, who was there from the beginning, was with God and was God, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, literally pitched his tent. You see how this is a summary of the whole gospel? You start with John, you then hear about baptism, about power being conferred, and then he goes on to talk about the great act that we're still celebrating, the incarnation. The word, it's almost, I almost trivialize it to say it, <laughs> who was there from the very beginning, before the beginning of anything, that word became flesh and literally pitched his tent among us, dwelt among us, that's why it's good news. The Greek never could have dreamed of that, that God could actually become a man, become one of us, all right, and dwelt among us. Now John comes forward with the affirmation of the gospel. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, grace and truth are divine attributes in the Old Testament. Whenever you hear filled with grace and truth, that's the Lord God, that's Yahweh. So he's saying of Jesus, the one who's only begotten the Father, filled with grace and truth. Then we go on. John bore witness concerning him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who is to come after me has been set above me because he was before me. Now, you know Luke's gospel enough to know, did Jesus come before John? No. So what's he talking about here? What's the Baptist aware of? Yes, this is an eternal generation. He, okay, so this is Hugh. I said, Hugh is to come after me, has been set above me because he was before me. Not in chronology, but in eternity. So he's affirming the eternity of the word. Then he goes on, and of his fullness, we, who's the we? It's Christians, of his fullness, we have all received. And then he goes on, grace for grace. I mean, if you think about it, the mere fact that you're here tonight, <laughs> you wouldn't be here if God hadn't given you an actual grace. 
Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we feel like God is not close to us or I don't hear him. We're swimming in a sea of grace. We just don't recognize it. We don't see it. It's almost like when you're wearing glasses, you don't realize you're wearing glasses until you take them off. Whoa. Or maybe when it rains, you remember that. But it's almost like, but it's all around us all the time. And so what's John with it? We've received all of this, grace upon grace. And then he goes on to show the superiority of this gospel that we're going to be talking about. For the law was given through Moses. The law, which in many ways was a curse. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, those divine attributes, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus the anointed. Jesus the Messiah. Remember, Christ is not his last name. right? It's a title. The Savior Messiah. The Savior Messiah. Jesus Christ. And then again, to show and emphasize the superiority of the new dispensation, the new covenant. No one has at any time seen God. God spoke out of the world when Job never saw him. Even Moses, who was his intimate friend, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, right? Remember the one time he said, let me see your face. What did God say? No man sees my face and lives. I will pass by you and look at the backside and see my glory. So the greatest prophet in the Old Testament never saw God. And that's why John affirms, no one has seen God. But then what? <laughs> the only begotten Son, notice the uniqueness, only begotten, not made, begotten, not made, only begotten, who was in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. He has revealed him. All right. Why? Because he's in the heart of the Father. He proceeds from the Father. He's in the bosom of the Father. That's why at the end of this gospel, remember when Philip's going to say, show us the Father and that's enough. And he's going to look and say, Philip, have I been with you all this time and still you do not know? He who sees me sees the Father. Right? Now we know that Mary gave everything to Jesus in terms of his human nature, right? So we know Jesus probably looked a lot like his mom. But imagine the great moment right after the birth. There's always that great moment when a baby's first born, when the baby opens his eyes. Imagine the moment when he opened his eyes and she looked in, which are the windows to the soul, and recognized that he had his father's eyes. Huh? Imagine that. Talk about contemplation. Do I lift him up and nurse him and caress him? Do I, do I worship him? What do I do? I mean, Mary, wow. She doesn't have to look up to heaven. Why? Because she's got heaven in her arms. She's holding heaven. Incredible moment. That's why I'm, I'm happy it's still Christmas season. I'd go right up to February 2nd if I could. All right? We still got the crush up at home. We're hanging tough. All right. Macy's can take it down. I don't care. Anyway, they could take some other things down, too. Anyway, all right. Don't, don't want to get political. We love everybody. Does that make sense? That's the prologue. What we have just gone through right there is a whole summary of the gospel, of everything we're going to do. Now, if you have your text, I want to go through this because remember, this is a Genesis motif. I want you to notice a couple things. When we leave the prologue and now go into the book of signs on verse 19, I don't know if you don't write, put it in your notes, put a little one there because this is the first day and I want you to count days. It's very subtle in the text. But I think if you read with me carefully, you're going to see the same thing as we go along here. And this is the witness of John. Now we go into the gospel proper. Let's talk about John. Put a little one by 19 or in your notes if you don't like writing your Bible or whatever. Okay? And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him from Jerusalem, priests and Levites, to ask him, Who art thou? Now a couple things we want to notice. John has made a big sensation here couple of reasons why. First of all, there has been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. For four centuries, there's been no prophet. Now, all of a sudden, he's out in the wilderness saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He looks like a wild man, and he's baptizing all sorts of people. And so this is making such an impression. There's so much excitement, expectation. Could this be the guy? So much so that there's an official delegation that's sent out from Jerusalem, a priest, to ask him formally, 
Who are you? And it's a hostile question. This is a trial. And he's going to be, as John said, a witness. First witness in the trial. All right? And he's going to come and give his testimony. And he's going to do that by deflecting things away from himself and to the one who is to come. Who art thou? And he acknowledged and did not deny. He acknowledged, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, do you notice how they think he's being kind of tricky? Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Oh, are you the prophet? Back in Deuteronomy, there was a prophecy about the great prophet, the Messiah, who was to come. Are you playing games with us here? And just, no, no. They therefore said to him, Who art thou that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Because this is coming from the Sanhedrin. This is big news. Who are you? And what hast thou to say of thyself? Now, there's another reason why this is causing big problems. And it's going to be important later on in our next get-together, next Thursday. And he's baptizing Jews. Now, this is a real problem. If you're a Gentile and you're attracted to Judaism, they understood a type of water baptism, a type of cleansing as you approach closer to Judaism. But you never baptize Jews. Now, the fact that all these Jews are coming to him, John baptized me and submitting to baptism, what's implied in that? The Jews were never baptized because they are the chosen people. They are saved. Now, the fact that John is baptizing them the way they would have baptized Gentiles, it's sort of saying, it's implying that being Jewish is not enough. And we're going to see in a dialogue with Nicodemus that that's true. Okay? So right there, problem number two. All right? You're out baptizing all the... Who is this guy? Find out who he is. Now, they knew when the Messiah would come, there would be some type of baptism of the Spirit. And they knew that. So he's out there baptizing, he's saying, are you doing this, this, this? So it's behind the question is, why are you doing this? If you're not this guy, if you're not the Christ. And so he goes on. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the desert. He quotes Isaiah. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said Isaiah the prophet. And they who had been sent were from among the Pharisees. And they asked him and said, why then dost thou baptize if thou art not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And then John takes the opportunity to prepare them for something even bigger, right? Because those who believe in his name of the one who is to come are going to have the power to become what? Sons of God by believing through baptism. So he goes on to say, I baptize with water, but in the midst of you has stood up one whom you do not know. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because he comes unto his own and his own received him not. The world doesn't recognize him. Right in your midst there has stood one whom you do not know. He it is who is to come after me, who has been set above me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to loose. Now, God sent a great man, and John is a great man. The more you think about John the Baptist, you can understand why he has so many feast days. His birth, his martyrdom, even the feast of the baptism, he gets a lot of good press on that too. But God sends a great man to reveal someone who's more than a man. Now, if this is the greatest of all the prophets, the greatest born of women, and he says, the one coming after me, I'm not worthy to loosen his strap. That's what the slave did. I'm not even worthy to take the strap off the sandal. What does that tell us about the one who's coming? And they thought perhaps he was the Christ. They thought he was possibly Elijah. And he's saying, there's one you do not know. I'm not even worthy to undo his strap of his sandal. Tells us something, doesn't it? He goes on from there. These things took place at Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now take a look at verse 29 and how does it start? The next day, okay? So, verse 19, day one, okay? The next day, day number two. So we're on to the next day. So let's keep going. 
The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Ecce, agnus dei, quitolis peccata mundi. All right, that's where we get it from. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, now, this is really important. It shows how much more from John's gospel we get an insight into John the Baptist than we do from the synoptics. What does John know about Jesus when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What's he, what's he know about Jesus? Okay, he's certainly the anointed, he's certainly the Messiah, but what's he coming to do? Save us, to take away sins. Remember, gosh, this goes way back. Remember Genesis. Remember that beautiful scene? That's kind of painful scene for me as a dad. Most dads really get upset with this. Where Abraham's walking up the mountain with Isaac. That's a horrible scene. Father, the fire and the wood, and he's put the wood on his son Isaac, and they're going up the hill, a hill that God had designated, <laughs> which was probably you know what. And they're going up the hill, the fire and the wood. But where is the sacrifice? And then what does Abraham say? God himself, God himself will provide the sacrifice, my son. God himself. So down through the ages, through all sorts of types and all sorts of prefigurements and countless Passovers, the cry goes up, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And we keep doing Passover and over, where is the lamb? And then finally, finally, the moment has come, John holds up and says, behold, the lamb of God. This is it. Who will take away the sins of the world? Something we take for granted. Where would we be without the sacrament of confession, without reconciliation? Where we can go in and the priest can raise his hand in absolution and sprinkle us with the blood of Jesus Christ and we can walk out freed from that. Imagine if we lived in a world where that was not possible. That's what was going on here. That's why the gospel is evangelion. It's good news. It's great news. It's unbelievable. I can be forgiven my sin. I can be forgiven my infidelity, my fornication, my gossip, my murder, whatever it is. I can be forgiven, and a new life, a grace-filled life, is possible. Why? Because I'm a son or daughter of God. That's the good news, and that's why, I mean, the media gets it wrong all the time. It's just, oh, Christian's guilt, and let's yeah, hammer Santorum for his contraceptive comment, and, you know, getting more political. I'm sorry, just hammer, hammer, hammer. That's not what it's about. It is the greatest news ever for everybody in the world. And it shouldn't shock us that the world doesn't recognize it, because it didn't recognize him. But that doesn't mean we don't continue to joyfully proclaim it, as the Baptist did. So he points out, this is he of whom I said, after me there comes one who has been set above me, because he was before me. And I did not know him, but that he may be known to Israel, for this reason I have come baptizing with water. Then we have the Spirit descending, and he bears witness that this is the Son of God. That goes on till 34. Now, if you take a look at 35, what do we see at the beginning of 35? Okay, so what day is that? Day number three, okay? There's a reason why we're doing this, okay? So stick with it, okay? Again, the next day, John was standing there, and two of his disciples, and we can kind of figure out who the two are, because we're getting all this intimate information about John, that's two of Jesus' future disciples, were also disciples of John the Baptist and knew him intimately. This is why we're getting more information. And we get an insight into how much John knew about Jesus. That he was pre-existent. He existed from all eternity. That he was going to be the sacrificial victim as Messiah. And through that sacrifice was going to lead to the forgiveness of the sins of the world. All right? So we go on there. Two disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked by, he said... Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So what's he doing? He's pointing out, behold the Lamb of God. So the two disciples of John get it. They leave John and begin to follow Jesus. But Jesus turned around, and seeing them following him, said to them, and notice his questions. His questions are always so beautiful. They're always so sweet. They're always so sensitive. <laughs> what does he say to them? What is it you seek? Isn't that a great question? That's the question for everybody here tonight, everyone in the world. What is it you seek? There's one thing that all human beings seek. Happiness. What is it you seek? What is it you seek? 
And they said to him, Rabbi, which is interpreted means master, where dwellest thou? So in other words, when they say, where do you live? He recognizes that what do they want? They don't want just a casual conversation. They want to be with him. They want to be with him. Where do you live? And then he says, come and see. Because what is he? He's the light. So he invites them, come and not just be with me, but come and see. It's a deeper meaning that he's communicating. Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour, which is about 4 in the afternoon. Little detail indicating eyewitness, right? It's about 4 in the afternoon. So that ends another day, all right? That's the end of another day. Wow, what did they talk about? Well, John said that you're the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. And then they must have had an incredibly fruitful discussion. Could you imagine just the two of them sitting there talking with Jesus and Jesus just beginning his mission? Oh my gosh, what mystery there is in the gospel. That's why, you, you know, sometimes you should just take one line and spend an hour on one line thinking about it. Because it is so rich. That's the old Lexio Divina, right? So they came and they saw, all right? Now, that's the end of day three. So when we get to verse 40, since it's late afternoon, this is now day number four on verse 40. Now, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who had heard John and had followed him. Now, we know Andrew's one of the guys. Who do you think the other guy is? John, all right? That's what tradition says. It was Andrew and John were disciples of the Baptist. Now... We're getting to the building and calling of disciples. Now, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who had heard John and had followed him. Now, they want to identify Andrew, but even more importantly, who do they want to identify? Simon Peter, all right? Because his name is not Simon Peter. His name's Simon Bar-Yona. But John wants to make sure that you get who he's talking about. Why? Because this is important for the future of the church. It's Simon Peter is the one I'm talking about here. So, he found first his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is interpreted the Christ. Notice a couple things. God works through other people, right? He needs us to be his ambassadors. Andrew's the brother of Peter, but there's no selfishness. He encounters Christ. Now, notice what happens. When he finds Simon, what does he say to him? We have found the Messiah. So, did they come and see? Yes, because what did they call him the day before? Rabbi. So we've moved from rabbi to now come and see, and now he says, we have found the Messiah. All right? Now notice, it's so beautiful about Andrew. Andrew is the PR guy in the apostolic college. He's always introducing people to Jesus all the time, going around. You know, the Greeks want to see him. It's Andrew. We got a guy who's got, you know, little boys got some loaves and fishes. He's all, you know, he's always bringing people to see Jesus. And so he's bringing his brother. Now think about it. This is, oh, it's so frustrating. We as Catholics, we're the worst at evangelizing. Don't you think it's true? We sort of take, what's that passage, Mark? First chapter, verse 33, the only thing we ever follow is see that you tell no one. That's kind of, that's, that's, that kind of, you know what I mean? It's kind of like the Catholic evangelical outreach, you know? I mean, there's so many times when we could bear witness, but I mean, it's like when you encounter something of incredible beauty, you have to share it, right? You hear a beautiful piece of music, you see a great movie, you have to see this. You've got to read this book. You've, you know, we, we can't, we're human beings, we're social animals. You've got to bring it, you've got to share. He spends one day with Jesus and he can't bear it. He's so excited. He says, we found the Messiah. Be, Simon, we found him. You must come. It's like anything that's great or that's beautiful. That's the reaction that people had to Jesus who come and see and really see what he is. All right? So they go off and they get the brother Simon. We have found the Messiah. And he led him to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the disciple does. He must increase, I must decrease. He leads him to Jesus, brings him to Jesus. It's sort of a summary of what the church should be all about. 
But Jesus, looking upon him, and it's emplein in the Greek, which means an intense gaze that pierces into the very heart of a man. Jesus looking said, Thou art Simon the son of John. Uses his full name. Thou art Simon Bar-Yona. Thou shalt be called Kephas, which is translated or interpreted Peter. So he makes a prediction right there that he's going to become what? The rock. The rock. The ground of the church. And he uses the Aramaic there. The Aramaic word for rock is Kephas, which he says, which is translated Petros. It's not a transliteration. It's a translation in the Greek. All right? He's going to be called rock. So right at the beginning, as soon as he's called, John wants you to get it that this man, Simon Peter, is going to be Kephas. He's going to be the rock. So did Christ intend to found a church? Did he intend to have a primate? Yeah. Nothing is here by accident. And that's why we need to spend time on this and think about these, okay? Which is interpreted Peter. I wish we had more time, but we'll go on. Verse 43, the next day, day number five. The next day he was about to leave for Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Now remember, he's calling disciples. This clearly shows what? He's planning to establish a church. He's gathering his disciples. He's going to be the master. They're going to be the followers. He's planning. This is not something that developed in the second century. It's right there at the beginning of his ministry. He needs individuals to work with him, to cooperate with him. The church is not an afterthought. The church is a gift of his heart. It's there from the very beginning. And that should be a great consolation to all of us. Now, <laughs> Jesus finds Philip, says, follow me. So what's Philip going to do? Philip found Nathaniel. All right. Now, this is interesting because Nathaniel is also known as Bartholomew. It's the same guy. Nathaniel, Bartholomew, the same guy. It's not unusual at all for Jews to have a couple of names back then, like John Mark and other things like that. But John doesn't call him Bartholomew. He calls him this thing Nathaniel. Because you know what Nathaniel means in Hebrew? One who sees God. <laughs> One who sees God. That's going to be important, isn't it? Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, now notice, we keep making progress. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. Now, how do they know Moses and the prophets wrote about this guy? There must be conversations going on, all right? Already the teaching, already the foundation is being laid as they are spending time with him. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What does Philip... <laughs> can anything good come out of Nazareth? But now notice what Philip says. I think it's so awesome. What does Philip say? Come and see. You heard that before? Who says come and see? Jesus. All right. So who's he acting like? He's, okay. He's an ambassador. And you become an ambassador. You go spiritually by what? By becoming like him. By being like him. So come and see. The same invitation the disciples are now giving to others that Jesus gave initially. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold, a true Israelite, in whom there is no guile, no deceit. Nathanael said to him, Whence knowest thou me? Now notice what he, the way he described him must have resonated with him. Behold, an Israelite, in whom there is no guile. He doesn't make fun of it. He says, How do you know me? What Jesus said went right to the core of his person. And Jesus answered, said, Before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now, it's interesting, though, fig trees have broad, sort of very leafy, and it was very common for Jews back at this time, because of the shade afforded, that they would frequently sit under fig trees, and that's where they would do their praying. So what do you think Nathaniel was praying for as he's sitting under the fig tree? Messiah. They all wanted it. John was out there. Lord, send us the Messiah. May the Messiah come. And then he says, before I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel recognizes, well, here's a man who knows my heart. Here's a man who knows my deepest desires, my deepest longings, and knows what my deepest aspirations are. And so what does Nathaniel answer? Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Do you see the progress he made? First, he's called rabbi, all right? Then they come and see, then he's called 
the Messiah. Now, lastly, as we get to the last one, what is he called? Son of God, King of Israel. Messianic titles. So a gradual revelation as we go through this, pointing out who he really is. Now, answering Jesus said to him, Because I said to thee, I saw thee under fig tree, dost thou believe greater things than these thou shalt see? And he said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. It comes from Daniel, where this man-like figure before the throne of glory. He always refers to himself as Son of Man. In Matthew's Gospel, 70 times he calls himself the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. It's quasi-divine. It's filled with mystery, but it captures, in a certain sense, the mystery of his person. Now, that was day number five, right? Now, we go on to chapter two, and then we find what? On the third day, from the fifth day, which makes it what? Eight, seven days a week in the Jewish calendar, right? So if it's the eighth day, what is it? It's the first day of the week. What day is it? Sunday. Oh, is that significant? Absolutely. We've had seven days of a new creation, of a creation of the creation, seven-day week. Now we're into a new creation. And so on the eighth day, Sunday, which is also referred to as on the third day, which normally the scripture says, and on the third day, what happens? On the third day, he rises from the dead. It's Sunday. It's a foreshadowing of resurrection, all right? And so he's going to rise by performing his first great sign. And this is so beautiful. Why? Because it's a wedding feast. It's at a home. And the home really needs to be sanctified. You know, the, our homes are supposed to be domestic churches. So many times our best face is out in public and our worst face at home, right? And it should be the exact opposite. Those are the people we love we should be doing the most for. So on the third day, a marriage took place at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, this is important for a host of reasons. Nothing is accidental. The fact that it's a marriage all throughout the Old Testament, when they try to speak of the love of God and his people, it's always in terms of marriage. Because marriage is very demanding, right? There's nothing as demanding as the love between man and woman, right? Okay. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I mean, we put great demands on one another. That may be fine for Susie, but not for you, you know, whatever that, you know. It's a very demanding love. So in the context of the marriage, okay, there's this marriage. It's in the context of wedded love that Jesus is going to manifest. Now we're told the mother of Jesus was there. Now Jesus, too, was invited to the marriage and also his disciples. And that's why they probably ran out of wine because the, <laughs> the disciples came in. It's an old joke about how we know Jesus was Irish, right? He had 12 drinking companions. He was 30 and was unmarried. And his mother thought he was God. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, so enough of that. Now the wine having run short... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, a couple of things you want to know. Wine is a biblical expression of teaching. It means teaching. It can refer to teaching. And so when she says they have no wine, there's a sense in which that is literally true. They're running short of wine. But there seems to be a deeper meaning, too. They have no wine. Now, nothing would be worse than to run out of wine at a wedding, right? Run out of Guinness at an Irish wine. It'd be horrible. All right. You can't have something like that. It'd be horrible. And Jesus said to her, What wouldst thou have me do, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now, a couple of things we want to notice about this. First of all, to call your mother by the title woman was unprecedented in Jewish culture. You did not do that. You don't call your mother woman. It's a form of polite address. To use it to your mom, you would never do it. So there has to be a deeper meaning. What he's literally asking, what me to thee, woman? What is our relationship? What is our relationship? What me to thee, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now, every time Jesus talks about his hour in the Gospel of John, it always refers to his passion. 
It's his passion. It's his suffering. My hour has not yet come. So when he says this and he calls her woman, what's he saying? Whenever Jesus asks a question, it's always with great courtesy. There's always great courtesy and sensitivity. She comes up, she sees clearly there's a need. She wants him to do something. But before he does something, he asks a question about the relationship. What me to thee, woman, my hour is not yet come. In other words, if you want me to do something now, this will commence my hour. I'm on my way. And if I do this, we're not going back home to Nazareth. Nazareth is over. That door closes. And you need to know that, Mom. All right? Nazareth is over. We're not going back there. And if I do that, remember what motif this is, Genesis motif. If I do that, then you become the woman spoken of, right? Because she's going to be called woman one other time in this gospel. And guess where that is? John 19 at the crucifixion. Woman, behold thy son. So in the midst of all this convivial merriment, there's this oasis of silence, and Jesus looks right into the eyes of his mother, and she looks back, do you want me to do this? This is the moment. And then she gives us her last recorded words in sacred scripture. Last thing she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. She's the perfect disciple. See, she loves Jesus But she also loves us. This is so beautiful. That's why if you ever go to Rome, you have a chance to see uh, Michelangelo's Pieta, the most beautiful image. You get up, but if you can get close to it and look, you can see it's very clear the right hand of the Blessed Mother. You can see, because there's dimples in the flesh, that she's really pulling Jesus close, showing her maternal love for her son. But the other hand is open and she's offering him to us, and that gesture shows her love for us, because we're her children too. It's so profound, it's so beautiful. That's why John Paul in his encyclical on the Eucharist said, Mary was a woman of the Eucharist her whole life. Because what is she offering to us right there? The body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's what it is. When she goes to visit Elizabeth, it's the first Eucharistic procession in history, right? That's a tabernacle. That's a monstrance. Because what's she carrying about in her? The body, blood, soul, and divinity. Woman of the Eucharist her whole life. When you're meditating on the presentation in the temple for the rosary, what should we be thinking about? The greatest offering in the history of mankind, right? Better than any oxen, goat, sheep throughout all of salvation. She comes and what does she offer? She brings her son to give the son back to the Heavenly Father. So beautiful. Do whatever he tells you. That's her last words. Then we're told that there are six stone water jars after the Jewish manner of purification, each holding two to three measures. Now, that's a lot. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim, to the brim. They can't contain anymore. Seven is the biblical number of completion. Six is the number of imperfection, right? That's why the Antichrist is 666, fullness of imperfection. Don't want to go into that too much, but okay. So there are six stone jars. They're filled to the brim. They can't contain anymore. And Jesus said to them, draw out now and take to the chief steward. And they took it to him. Now when the arbiter bibendi, every wedding party has something like this, the the chief steward. You saw Father of the Bride. It's Frank. (laughs) Mr. Banks. All right, whatever. Okay. (laughs) So they take it to the chief steward. All right. Not knowing whence it came from, the chief steward called the bridegroom and said, Every man at first sets forth his good wine, and when they have drunk freely that which is poor, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. The good wine until now. Now, wine, abundance of wine is a sign of messianic times. They have no wine. They're barren. Okay? Six stone water jars for Jewish washing, ritual washing. That water has now been transformed into wine. Can they use that for cleansing anymore? Jewish ritual replaced. But if you can turn water into wine, then the next step is to take wine and turn that into blood. So that wine will become cleansing because the wine will be transformed. There's a Eucharistic context to all of this. That wine will eventually become the cleansing. 
because that will become the great sacrificial meal that we share and that we call the Mass. So all of these things at this wedding feast, the Blessed Mother's role as woman, the transformation of all of those vats of wine, and the fact that it's good wine and that it's better, all of these prepares. This first of his signs, Jesus worked at Cain of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they stayed there but a few days. We'll stop there, I think, and then we'll take some questions. Okay, thank you. All right. We'll thank you, there. Dr. Norman. Thank you very much, Dr. Donald. Very excellent. As usual, we are going to have a Q&A session after a short break. I was interested in your comment about uh, when John said the Lamb of God, you know, and talked about the Isaac story. Because, of course, at that time, God did provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And I just wanted to, to verify it is true that the Jews continue to understand there was going to be I never know how much is like the mystery that they didn't understand or whether they really knew there was going to be another real sacrifice. Oh, sure. That's an excellent question. Um, I think in the particular context there, what I'm drawing upon is the whole tradition. When Abraham speaks that, it's true, God does provide. But it was clear that even when you're doing the Passover, the sacrificial meal, that lamb and the sacrifice of that lamb was not the Messiah. It was a foreshadowing. It was a longing. And they, they and the Jewish rabbis would have understood it in that context as well. It was beautiful. It was definitely sacrificial. But it was not the Messiah. So what John is now revealing is the fulfillment of this longing, the fulfillment of this desire, because now you have the Lamb of God. I'm linking it back in a way to the whole question, you know, that between Abraham and Isaac. I'm not saying necessarily that John did that, but when he sees the Lamb and says, Behold the Lamb of God, there clearly was a sense that when the Messiah, he knew the sacrificial nature of the Messianic identity and all that. So when he sees Jesus coming, he manifests that and says, Behold, here's the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world once and for all. Since Jesus turned water into wine, some Protestant denominations at the Lord's Supper use water instead of wine or grape juice. Is that biblical? That's sad. <laughs> no, it's part of the problem. I mean, we do need to be sensitive to this in the sense that there has been, in many instances, you know, serious abuse of alcohol and alcoholism that has led to the reaction against that, that a lot of times that's associated with debauchery. Now, Wine remains a great good. <laughs> Jesus used it. Uh, and as the wine that would have been used back in ancient times with the process of fermentation probably was far more intoxicating at a higher alcoholic content than the wine we have now. So there's no real foundation for that. I mean, who ever heard of grape juice gladdening the heart? You know, and I mean, there's all sorts of Old Testament tradition and things like that. They clearly were speaking of wine. And this is really sort of an aberration. I think misguided, and I want to be understanding towards that, because I think sometimes it's associated with painful memories and things like that. But that's not a foundation, nor is that good exegesis. Jesus turned it into wine, and he doesn't do things that are bad. Thank God for wine. Oh. <laughs> with the wedding feast at Canaan, when Jesus says to them, fill the jars, got these jars that are... 20, 30 gallons each. Mm -hmm. Well, the time that it's taking to fill these, you, you can see that the attention of the whole party at the wedding feast, what are these people doing? Once he makes this into wine, as you said, these jars can't be used again for the ritual. But many of these Jews must have realized that something just happened here that he's telling us something about what we can't do anymore. So I, that's absolutely right. The stone jars, I mean, there was an abundance of wine. Probably 120 gallons of wine is what he produced. And uh, really good wine, too. So that's another sign that it was, it was very... Although, I remember for the Jubilee year, we went there. My wife and I went there. We renewed our wedding vows. They gave us a bottle of Cana wine. And the miracle was that the water turned into wine, not that it was better than the wine that was served, because that could have been put on a salad, man. It was horrible. <laughs> it was really... We had it a year later. It was like vinegar. It was horrible. But... Um, 
No, what you see, this is going to be a big theme in the gospel. In the next class, we'll talk about it as well, that Jesus begins replacing Jewish traditions and Jewish feasts, but by elevating them and by perfecting them. The stone jars probably would have been on the outside, so it would have been a ritual washing. It is a great miracle, but again, it's true. It can't be used for cleansing, but once the water is turned into wine, then the wine can be used for cleansing because it's a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen later. Good question. Dr. O'Donnell, I always wondered if from Luke's Gospel, where he uses that beautiful word at the uh, angelic salutation, kekeritomene, that has such a deep meaning, full of grace, mm -hmm. is that the same word that St. John uses in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth? I believe so, yes. I'd have to go back and ch I don't have my Greek with me, but I believe it is the same word because she is filled with the divine life. She already has the life of grace, sanctifying grace. She's filled with that. And that's the divine life. It's the same thing that we get. That's why we become true heirs. Okay, good question. Uh, this refers to the last sentence of the uh, verse. After this, he and his mother and his brother went to Capernaum. Uh, what does the brothers refer to? Oh, I see. Went down he and his brethren and his disciples. Probably would refer to his relatives. Relatives. Says brothers. Brethren is probably better rendering it. There's the doctrine, of course, Mary did not have other children. We know that. That is, was solemnly condemned as a heresy. Jewish families would have been very, very close. Brethren gives a better translation, I think, than his brothers. Brothers sort of, can, in English, can give a misunderstanding there. But the fact that there were people in his own household and close relatives and friends that would have followed with him because he was an itinerant preacher. But if Mary's there, they probably were at the wedding as well. Jesus invited with the disciples. Mary's there. It would be almost unthinkable that probably other relatives weren't there too. There was certain clannishness about the whole thing. So after they leave and they go down to Capernaum, that they would have gone as well. All right? So it doesn't refer to immediate brothers or sisters, but rather cousins, relatives. Brethren is a better translation, I think. Very good question. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Is that it? We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.